I like the unusual flavor of Thunderbird wine. It's an exceptionally good drink for every occasion. Thunderbird has an unusual flavor all its own. Not quite like anything I've ever tasted. I suggest that you try Thunderbird. It's really delightful. Thank you, James Mason, and welcome to Airwaves Full of Bacon, the Chicago food and restaurant podcast from me, Michael Gebert, James Beard Award-winning food writer and video maker for the Chicago Reader, Where Chicago, Thrillist, and more. What are those shiny tanks and pipes you see just west of the loop on Randolph? I get a tour of CH Distillery, a distillery and tasting room where they make everything from vodka to Amaro. Then we'll meet the person who's responsible for as much of your enjoyment of a restaurant as any chef or manager. She's the designer, Karen Harold, who gave us the look and feel of restaurants like Girl and the Goat and Belena. Last year at this time, I talked with Lisa Seamus of Chicago Social about their annual restaurant issue. Well, the new issue's out, and we'll do it again. And finally, around 8.30 every night this month, some restaurants on Devon Avenue will become the hottest spots in town. That's because it's Ramadan. We'll find out more about that from Muslim food blogger Yvonne Maffei. So pour yourself a tall glass of Thunderbird or swig it straight from the paper bag. It's time for the unusual taste of airwaves full of bacon. Could I have another glass of Thunderbird? I'm feeling a bit parched. No, James, I think you've had enough. I've been on a lot of distillery tours, um, which are really fascinating, and I love them, but it was always frustrating because you get to the end, and all you get is this little plastic cup with a little tiny, you know, warm pour, and, you know, okay, kind of interesting, but, no, let's have a cocktail, or at least a full pour or something, so I thought that would be a good idea, and, and I was shocked that nobody was doing that in the city of Chicago. In an office building just west of the train stations on Randolph, the corner space that might be a FedEx or a Starbucks instead holds gleaming chrome pipes and tanks. It's CH Distillery, Chicago's first combination spirits distillery and bar, which makes its own vodka, rum, bourbon, and more, and serves them on premise. Tremaine Atkinson is the co-founder and distiller, and he invited me in for a tour and a chat at the bar. So when I was about 25, I started homebrewing. I lived in San Francisco, got really into it um, with my buddies and my brother, and um, like got into it to the point where I started my own yeast lab and the whole deal. So I was a really geeky homebrewer. And um, so like a lot of 20-year-olds, I was like, oh, well, maybe I can make a business out of this. So two of my buddies and I raised 5,000 bucks between the three of us and um, tried to start a brewery. And um, so, and the idea was that we were we were going to make uh, five gallon kegs and then deliver them. That was our business model. We had no idea what we were doing. So within about six months, we blew through the five thousand bucks, mostly in research, <laughs> and decided, okay, well, we better focus on our day job. So, um, so I kept brewing though, um, and just kind of always lived with this dream of of doing, you know, doing a brewery or doing something. Um, 
when uh, when I you know finally was able to raise enough capital to do it. And so I spent 25 years in financial services and um, um, had a good career, enjoyed it, um, and just basically saved everything I made. And about two years ago, I said to myself, it's time to do this. And meanwhile, I'd been kind of following what had been going on with craft distilling. Um, I've always been a huge vodka fan, just love the clean, simple vodka on the rocks, vodka up. It's always been my go-to drink. And um, I was always fascinated by the fact that you really can't make vodka at home because it's a very technical distillation. And so I said, well, there's that too, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, so I said, um, you know, I think brewing sounds cool, but I think distilling sounds like even more fun and uh, and then what also seemed um, immediately interesting to me was the idea of doing this combination of a bar and the distillery. This is what we start with. Um, this is the wheat and rye um, that was grown you know, just outside the city. We're in the distillery now, amid giant tanks and tall stacks of pipes that look like they belong to a steamboat in Willy Wonka's factory. So basically a half of the factory is a brewery and the other half is a distillery because our so the first thing we're going to do with these these grains is um, mash them which is the process of converting starches to sugars it's the same same thing that beer brewers do from the wheat and rye and that happens in the mash tank right here uh, so we have a mill down in the basement we start with about a ton of grain uh, in whole whole form like this and we mill it into a flour and then we've got Right here, a grain elevator, uh, which goes up from the mill and dumps that ton of flour into this tank here. Um, And then we add water and cook it up. And um, that combination of heat and water um, releases enzymes, which break the starches and the grains down into sugar. So you end up with sort of a sugary um, porridge of, of wheat and rye. Cool that down and then add in yeast and let the yeast do its job of fermenting um, those sugars into uh, essentially a beer. Um, so, but you know, our beer is a little different than beer brewers' beer because all we're really after is alcohol. We don't really we're not we're not trying to create flavors. We're trying to create alcohol. So we use a very neutral yeast. Um, it moves pretty fast. Um, it ferments out to about 10% alcohol in about four days. Um, and with just a minimum of, of character. The difference between home brewing beer and, and making alcohol is that the feds will come after you for one of them. Yeah. Uh, did you just go to other distilleries and practice, or how do you how do you learn the trade? So I already knew the the, the brewing side pretty well, but I supplemented that with um, I did some distilling at home um, and. Um, I took a class at the Siebel Institute, um, which was really helpful, read a ton of books, um, but basically you can't really do it until you open up your own place and just roll up your sleeves and go. Um, so we learned, you know, basically on our equipment. The, the fermentation we got down really fast, um, we nailed that right away. Then the distillation is really where, with vodka in particular, what you're doing is removing flavors, removing alcohols and flavor compounds out of um, what came out of the fermenter. And so just sort of figuring out to how to take the right amount out to still leave a nice character, but not too much character, that was the hard part. And in the end, you know, we knew all of the you know, settings to change on the deflagmators and the cooling water and the condenser and the steam and all of that stuff. But in the end, we just used our pellets. So once we got our beer, 
Um, then we go to the distillery, which is kind of this way. Okay. So we've got, we have, uh, we have a couple of stills here. And distillation really is just the separation of one liquid from another. So once we have a beer that's got about 10% alcohol in it, we want to separate out the 10% alcohol from the 90% everything else, which is mostly water. And to do that, we're going to rely on the fact that um, alcohol and water have different boiling points. Alcohol at about 190 degrees, water at about 212. So we'll take um, a 900-gallon fermenter full of 10% alcohol beer, pump it over into this still right here, which is called a stripping still. Um, this is basically a cooking pot. And what we get running out of this still is moonshine, basically. It's about 45% alcohol. Um, all of the, the, the grain and the yeast is left behind, so it's a beautiful clear liquid. Um, but it's moonshine in that it's got a whole lot of funk and character and flavor, which you wouldn't really want to drink. But it's a good first step. Um, because we've concentrated the alcohol and cleaned it up. Once you have that, then you need a vodka still or um, a column still in order to do much finer separation because the reason that moonshine or, or any other sort of more um, uh, character spirit has a lot of character is because it's got a bunch of different alcohols in it and a bunch of different compounds, all of which get created in the fermenter. Um, and so if you're going to make vodka, what you want to do is clean out um, all of the bad alcohols that give you a hangover, that can make you go blind or make you go dead, <laughs> um, and that have um, off flavors, which you might want in a whiskey or a rum, but you want out of your vodka. But for our vodka, because we have a very specific sort of um, character that we're trying to achieve, we'll take that first distillation of vodka and we'll put it back in the vodka still and run it through a second time. And that's where we do a little bit of flavor fine-tuning, where we pull off a little bit more heads, leave a little more tails behind. Um, and in that second run, it also gets a beautiful smoothness. For a lot of people, the romance of this is, you know, making something like scotch where you can throw, you know, you can smoke it with peat and you can throw it in different kinds of barrels and stuff like that. And you pick the most neutral thing, officially yeah. neutral, although we all know that vodkas are different from each other. Sure. So... Um, why that, and what, what do you see in vodka? Uh, first and foremost, I love it. Um, and so I wanted to make something that I love, that I was passionate about drinking. And um, I, um, you can see I have a, a bit of a modernist aesthetic, industrial aesthetic in the design of this place. Um, and I love simple things that are beautifully done. And so I love vodka when it's, when it's simply and beautifully done. Um, I'm not a big fan of vodkas that don't have character, you know, those that are basically just ethanol and water. Okay, that's not interesting, but ones where there is a, a, little, a little bit of essence um, is, I, I just love it. Um, so that's why I chose vodka. Probably not the greatest business decision, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's got to be fun, too, so... So do you have to sell people on it when they come in here? A, a little bit. You know, what's cool about this place is, okay, so, you know, I could probably describe myself as a vodka purist or a vodka snob, but there's none of that here when you come in. We, we don't care how you drink the vodka. We just want you to experience the beauty of the equipment, the fact that everything is made from these beautiful local grains, and that we're, you know, we're having a good time doing this. So 
Um, we do get a lot of people who come in and who are real, really interested in vodka, and they get a cool experience because they can talk to us about how it was made and how we get the character and all of that. But most people just come in and drink it in a Moscow Mule. Um, and so maybe the subtlety is gone, but, uh, but, but that it sort of sells itself um, in, in that sense. Now the Amaro that you're making, you're mm -hmm. the first one in this area to make Amaro. I assume that that's basically the vodka that it starts with. It's actually our rum. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so we make vodka. We make two two styles of gin, which are our core products. Those are distributed throughout the city, um, and that's what we started with. And then we, but our liquor license here is that it's a tasting room, so we can only serve what we make. So, um, gotta have a rum. Gotta have some whiskey. Um, so we make our own rum from scratch from molasses. Um, so we've always got some of that around for daiquiris at the bar and whatever. And um, when I started tinkering around with the Amaro recipe, um, one of the first things, one of the first flavors that I knew I wanted in there was um, a little bit of cocoa. Um, so we have beautiful cocoa, uh, cacao beans, cocoa nibs um, that are a flavor component. And um, I did a couple of uh, test batches just using, using vodka or neutral spirits. And then when I added the rum, it just brought it this, this beautiful richness. So... Is that common for Amaro to be made? I don't made? think so, no. Because um, yeah, what I read in my exhaustive Wikipedia uh, research was that it was, you know, that you wanted something neutral for the base, and rum doesn't seem neutral. No, it's, it, it's not. Our rum is, um, we, ours is an unaged rum that we distill to, um, we st distill pretty cleanly because it's unaged, so we... It's not as funky as, as rums that are going to go into a barrel for a couple of years. So it's a little bit lighter flavor, but what it has is um, it's got some of that molasses sort of character and sweetness, which really adds to the particular Amaro flavor profile that we came up with. The Amaro was actually born from um, one of our um, bartender friends, because you know we sell to bars and restaurants throughout the city. So one of our bartender friends um, um, said, I really wish you guys would make an Amaro. And we're like, okay, let's, why not? Let's try it. And so we um, started just tasting a whole bunch of stuff that was out there. And um, there were a few that I liked, but I found most of them were kind of sweet. And, uh, but a lot of bartenders in Chicago are using them because it's such a strong, you know, flavor addition to a cocktail. Um, and it just sounded fun. So um, I said, sure. I basically told her, yeah, we'll make it tomorrow. And then I went, came back here and I was like, Oh crap, now we have to make it tomorrow. <laughs> Most of the, if really not all, of the, the big brands out there are really just redistilled industrial ethanol um, with some type of flavor or additive added back in to achieve a character, whether it's smoothness or maybe a little citrus, citrusy sourness. Um, ours, our character, we add nothing to our vodka. The smoothness and the character come from the grain and from the way we, that we distill it. So they're it. buying it from somebody who did the first the first distilling, but not the yeah. second, and yeah. then they do the second? Yeah, they do the second. Um, there are, you know, there are, that's the, the bottling machine running right now. That. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there are, um, there are brands out there that would, you know, claim to be handmade um, where all they're doing is buying, you know, pre-made corn ethanol and the same stuff that would go in your gas tank and, and just adding water or redistilling it and adding some citric acid or sugar or something to give it some character.
Um, but so we're just we're doing it a little bit different. We're just going all the way from the grain. So what's cool is when it comes out of this still, it went in at 45% alcohol. It comes out at at least 95% alcohol, um, and it's incredible. It's when you taste it right off the still in small quantities, at, even at 190 proof, it's incredibly smooth and, and very very tasty. A little bit strong. Um, <laughs> so um, we just have a couple steps left to finish the vodka. Um, first is to do, we do a, um, an activated carbon filtration, uh, removes just a little bit of uh, potential residual odor, and then we cut it back to drink strength 80 proof um, with reverse osmosis filtered water, and, well, as you heard, we bottle it right here. Four bottles at a time are placed upside down on an air blower to kick out any dust that might have fallen inside them, then stacked on the bottling machine, which pumps them full of brown liquid. So which is this? This is the bourbon. The caps are placed on by hand, then screwed tight with a handheld device like a drill. You're in a lot of binnies, I noticed that. Yeah, yeah, um, that's fairly recent that we just got in there. Um, we kind of we weren't really chasing after them, but um, eventually they found out about us, and um, so it's, tur it's turned out nicely, I think, for both of us. Was, did you have to step up production for that? Um, they they sort of know that we're a little bit smaller, um, but yeah, that'll that it it will that will increase production. Um, demand is definitely growing, both at our cocktail bar and we're at about a uh, hundred different um, bars and restaurants. So and it just kind of keeps expanding. So uh, in the next six weeks, we're going to mill about 16,000 pounds of grain um, and turn it into vodka. So, yeah, we're busy. <laughs> the vodka and the gin are both made from um, Illinois wheat and rye. That's Those are our base ingredients, um, and it's grown in Kane County. So, I mean, you really can't really get much closer than that. And... Um, so we just we found a um, uh, a farmer who um, who just sources lo grains locally, and um, that was the first thing we did. And we just went to him and you know said you know give us a sample. And we started messing around with it. And it's absolutely beautiful grain. Um, the the type of wheat that grows in Illinois is a soft red winter wheat. It's a seed that's got to sit um, dormant underground during the winter in order to germinate in the spring. And soft means it has a low protein content, which conversely means it has a high starch content, which is great for distilling because we want starches. Um, so that, I mean, that sort of shaped the whole, the whole um, liquor program here was the choice of, of those ingredients. Um, and so is that how you, you picked that because it met certain characteristics like having so much starch? Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask how you taste raw grain and say, "Hmm, this is going to make good vodka." <laughs> it's 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 a yeah. You can't you, you can't you can kind of imagine it, but I, I you know the other choice obviously Illinois has produces a lot of corn. Um, I'm not a big fan of corn um, for vodka. I think it's I, corn is a pretty harsh fermentation, um, and I think you have to distill it out so clean to get rid of the harshness that you lose some of the character. So I you know just from having um, drank a lot of wheat and rye vodka because I knew I was more inclined to those two ingredients. It's a little bit like winemaking in the sense that um, if you're going to make a vodka like we do that has a little bit of character to it, the, that character is sort of 
already there in the raw material, and you just kind of have to find your way in to get it and pull it out. Um, a little bit like winemakers who talk about letting the grapes make the wine. So we're sort of letting the grains make the vodka. CH Distillery is at 564 West Randolph. You can see the list of retail locations selling their spirits at chdistillery.com. So whenever I got dragged into doing karaoke with people back in the 80s or 90s, my standard routine to avoid actually singing, which I absolutely cannot, was to do James Mason singing Hound Dog. I guess James Mason was still recent enough that this was funny. I'd have to do like Ian McCallan or somebody now for the kids to get the joke. But here at Airways Full of Bacon, instead of sticking it up, I prefer to let the interviews make the podcast. Hey, that sounds familiar. And if you like that approach, there's a couple of ways that you can support me here. First off, subscribe to Airwaves Full of Bacon at iTunes. You can also leave a comment and a rating, that would be kind. And finally, if you enjoy it, say so on social media like Twitter and Facebook. And get your friends to listen and subscribe too. Thanks. Why is your favorite restaurant your favorite restaurant? Well, you like the food, obviously. But beyond that, you like how it looks. You like the vibe. You feel comfortable there. You just like being there and want to be there again. That all didn't happen by accident. Restaurant design is both an art of making people comfortable and a science of making restaurants function well. Karen Harold is the designer behind restaurants like Girl and the Goat, GT Fish and Oyster, and Bea, Belena, and Wood. A Dutch native who started in fashion design and turned a brief stop here into a career in Chicago, she recently left her longtime position at 555 International to launch her own firm, Studio K, a few blocks from many of her projects on Randolph Street. And as I sat down in her new office, she was ironically working on a design problem of her own. As you'll occasionally be able to hear in this interview, she can hear the people walking around on the floor above her. She was trying to figure out how to solve her own user experience. You know what happened two weeks ago? I, it started here, and then I was like, I can't work here. And I went outside to talk to Kim, my partner, about it. And then I was on the phone, and while I was on the phone, she took my staff and had them move all my stuff from here into the conference room. Like, Karen is losing it. Let's move her, let's move her. <laughs> so they put me in a conference room thinking their conference room is above that. So at least then there's quiet because how many conferences can you have? Well, happened to happen 10 minutes after I moved in there. <laughs> and so there's 30 chairs rolling in, which you just, you feel like the ceiling is coming down. And then I heard, do, 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 do. You just hear them dialing. And I was just like, guys, I'm going crazy. The money I put in this building, I, I can't believe that this is yeah. happening. And she said, do you want us to go around the corner to the bar to work? And I'm like, no, I don't want to go to a bar to work. No, I built out this office. I don't want to go to a bar. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, those are the acoustic issues at Studio. Okay.
So. I'm sure that's not what you came to <laughs> But it's strangely appropriate to your work in, in many ways, I'm sure. Um, well, I know next to nothing about how you do this, but I worked in advertising, so I know how creative processes work from the, you know, absolutely nothing and no one has any idea how yeah. it's going to work, work. So it's funny because it's actually very close to how you learn it in school, which I didn't learn it in school because I went to fashion school. But um, it's the same process. It is, we start, first thing we usually meet with our clients, a lot of time are or the operators or the chefs, or both. And then, let's call it 90% of the information I'll get out of that first meeting. And we just talk and we hang out and we, I always say to them, it doesn't matter, we can go shop, we can go have a drink, doesn't matter what we do, I just need to be around you for two hours. And then just by the way you speak, looking at what you, you wear, the way you behave, I know what environment you need to feel good in. Then we go, we find images online of existing spaces that match that what I have in my head. Um, and a lot of times those are not just images of spaces or restaurants, those, that could be a dress, could be a necklace, like there's just an added, those are attitude images. So we collect those images, we put them together in a way that we feel makes sense and we collect materials that have that same attitude. We meet with the clients, 99 out of 100 times, they say, yes, exactly, how did you guess? And then, um, and then by that, that, we start doing schematic design, so we're doing floor plans, but then we, we go from the, the attitude to how do we create that attitude for you? So then at that point we started to look for actual materials that would fit in your budget. We're doing actual floor plans so to make sure that you have the amount of people that make sense for financially, how many people you need to serve. We're drawing elevations of bars and you know more important feature deals. Then we start finding the, all the actual information, the chairs, the lighting. We turn that into a CD set, construction set, so someone can actually build that. And at the same time, we're creating a budget for all these things that the clients will need to buy, all the pretty things that the construction guys don't include in their budget. And those kind of will happen at the same time. And in about two to three months process, then that's done. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting you said it, because when we rehabbed our house, our architect said that about half of his job was marriage counseling. And yes. It kind of sounds like the same. That's why I don't do residential design. Yeah. I, to me, and, and I do it for my clients because if you do long enough, if you build restaurants for specific operators who, who do a lot of them, like I remember Michael Morton, I did a lot of stuff for him at the, Palm, at the Palms Hotel in Vegas. And so after eight years or something, they're going to build a house, they feel most comfortable with me and they trust me at a level that then they want me to design their house. But in a way what's interesting though, what I do with my clients for their for their businesses, which is very different. The business is very, I feel it's personal enough that still people really care, so it's not so corporate that it's just the project managers who work it is to say whatever they want, so it's still personal, but it doesn't get to a personal level where it's so random. Because I feel residential design is so random in a way like, oh, I hate yellow. Okay, well then, for sure, let's absolutely not do yellow then. But in restaurant design, I just know 
what the energy is that will work for that specific demographic. So there's ways to create that energy and ways to direct traffic, lighting, things like that. And I imagine there's a lot of rules and wisdom about how restaurants have to have to function as a machine essentially. Yes. So I think like every in every job there is a specialty in just knowing the logistics of something and knowing the way things work. And once you know that then you automatically keep those things in mind and then you have all this other flexibility to then start working off of that. So for us the, the just the rules and I mean there's so many things that for me are just normal but how big the bars are and how much space you need behind the bar and in front of the bar and where service stations are and where the water comes from and where the new silverware comes from you know after 13 years you just kind of know that um, we always start with that because if you don't do that all the rest, then it doesn't matter how, look, how well it looks or how great it looks because exactly no one's gonna come right and and for me I was really lucky to have my training with clients that were our clients for many many years in a row so it was never that we handed a package and say here's your design good luck pay us and see you later we'll see you at the opening maybe and that's it so we were there the two weeks before opening, we were there at the opening, we were the week later, we were there a year later. So you really know the operations and you know where it doesn't work. And that to be in the beginning of my career, to be really close with the operators and be there on a day-to-day basis, made us design in a way that it will still look the same 10 years later. So the way I think a lot of designers will know how materials last and therefore use certain, let's say, cheaper materials, but a year later it's broken, or won't lay it out in a way that the staff has an easy access. So I think if you, if you have that, that knowledge, which is really just experience, then the, the trick gets and the fun part gets to be to challenge those ideas. Because one of my biggest kind of annoyances is, well, this is how we always do it, and that's how we do it. Because, yeah, that's maybe how we as a certain firm or a certain operator in a specific country does it. In Amsterdam, a lot of things go very different, because there isn't that formality of a host and the, the systems. And a lot of times it's kind of like, yeah, kind of sit there and we'll figure it out. <laughs> so everything is just so much more organized in here. But the trick is to do it in such a way that no one knows that that's what's about. The people don't see the bones that, under there. And, and don't see that, but also, like, for example, Balena, the Italian restaurant I did for the Boca guys, Balena, all the service is moved into the restaurant because I wanted to create an authentic Italian feel. And again, when you're in an old restaurant in Italy, there wasn't service stations behind the walls, and there, none of that was thought out. It was just like, here's a table, and that's where we can put water crafts or here we can put silverware on it because there's space for it and a lot of people feel really comfortable it's like the idea of the open kitchen you like the idea that the stuff is kind of happening around you as long as it's done in an aesthetically pleasing way so in Balena we moved all the surface items we have this big round table in the center all the silverware is there or the water is there we have all these niches embedded in the walls so there's one surface station that is kind of out of the eye 
all the rest is in the place, and that actually really works well too. And was there resistance from that, just because those guys thought, well, that stuff's supposed to be put away? No, not anymore, because that by then was like my third or fourth okay. restaurant with them. So it's all about trust. So at that point, they trusted me already. And it's never like, here, guys, this is what we're going to do. Most of the way of how I present it is like, hey, I've been thinking about something. Like, for example, a leather bar top. Now, there's a lot of resistance about leather bar tops. <laughs> These people have ideas about that. And the first one who allowed me to do it was Steve Wynn. And the fact that I've never heard one complaint, which he really tries for perfection. And I, it's still after, I think the restaurant's open for three or four years now. It's still perfect. Now, it, it wears like leather boots and saddles and handbags, but it gets prettier with the years. So I wanted to do that. And so I suggested that to Rob and Kevin. And then first I was like, no, how? That's not going to work. And then, obviously, if you have one example where you can prove it, then yeah. then it worked. And they just couldn't be happier. That place is open now for two years, I think. And, and it just, like, starts to live. It's like something that isn't stagnant in a restaurant, which I always like, if there could be movement in it. Now, it's interesting with Belena. The first time I walked into it, it was like, I've never seen as much open space in a restaurant in Chicago because no one can afford that much open space. Um, so how did you how did you arrive at, at the two floor uh, central hallway and, and things like that? I was there. My ex husband was in the theater next door at the Royal George while they were building it. This is when it was landmark. Yeah. Okay. So I was there every Sunday when I would pick him up for dinner, and I saw them building that space, right? And in the beginning, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so beautiful. And I would look in, and I saw the cobblewood flooring, like, this is beautiful. And then when days progressed, I was like, what's, what's going on? And it was getting less and less and less. And in my opinion, whoever that designer was, they raped that building. That was a gorgeous, is a gorgeous building, which was raped by this weird catwalk that they put in. So there was this big catwalk, which really created very little additional seating for the amount of stuff that it took. Like, it was a big price to pay for some random seats up there. And so when Rob and Kevin asked me to take it out, I said, or, or do a new restaurant in it, I'm like, well, you know, the good news is all you need to do is demo it. And if you just demo, you'll be 90% done. Actually, that restaurant was very architecturally challenging. I thought that there were just architectural mistakes made that if you fix those, you just feel better. And that's something that no one would, once it's done, no one would ever know what the issues were. So the, there is a lot of open space, but it's just vertical space. There's no, like, I mean, the tables are all this big, so you yeah. can actually <laughs> fit that many people in it. So, and then what we really, and I like that to do for most of the restaurants I do, is I like to create different levels of energy. So when you come in the room, that's like, oh, let's have a drink later at night, you know, that long bar, or it's a very high energy kind of mingling type of deal. Where when you go up to the second floor, that's like date night with your wife on Saturday night. So it's, there's like three very different distinctive levels of energy and it really makes I feel I have a whole different night when I sit upstairs than if I sit up front at the bar. No, I think that's that's really one of the things that feels like a successful design to me is that you feel there are different kinds of experiences to be had. Yeah. You know, to me it's always a little disappointing if you open a place and it's a rectangle and everyone's on the same level and they're all four tops and two yeah. tops. 
there's just no variety. There's no, I know that what happens in the whole restaurant as soon as I look at it. Yeah. How do you make that happen? So a couple of ways how I make that happen. The first and probably most important way is that I tell everyone and really try to instill in my staff too, is you design with your, with your core. Because instead of designing with your eyes and start matching colors, which I think is what most designers do, you just design with your, I call it my stomach, but I think it's for everyone somewhere else in your body maybe. But it's a very emotional process. And and so for me to figure out, most of the time I know this in the first hour when I walk in a building, and I just know what it needs from, from an emotion level. And a lot of times I compare it to, you know when you wake up and you had a dream and you just know it, you, you know that dream. But the moment you start trying to explain it to your wife or whoever, it's gone, right? You can't, the words are gone and then an hour later the whole dream is gone. But then maybe during the day something would happen and you're like, that's what I dreamt about, right? It comes back. So that is the way I design. That dream when I walk in a building or when I meet with a chef about their concept, I know what it needs to be. I know it from a very core level. And then after it, the three months that it takes after, is to find those words to explain that dream. And those words are materials and are lighting. And So the first thing starts with to address a space from an emotional level instead of from a visual level. Because I think people will might come the first time for a visual, like Vegas. Like, oh, crystal chandelier, that's five stories tall, wow. Okay, so the second time you know that crystal chandelier, you might not ever come back for that crystal chandelier. But if you go to a space where you felt really good, you will come back. Lots of restaurants get mentioned in this episode. How will you ever find them all? Go to the show post at skyfullofbacon.com. That's how. There's links, pics, and more. Also, if you haven't had enough of me as a host, I've been a guest on WGN Radio twice in the last month or so. Once with Barry Sorkin of Smoke, and once by myself to talk hot dogs with James Van Osdell. So you'll find the links for those shows and plenty of other things, too. I'll be back in the second half of the show. I just have to run to the liquor store for James. Again.
So I think for me, if, if I had to say one trend, it's chefs are doing restaurants that are very personal to them. So I think that would be the trend, which, but, which means we're seeing a lot of really different restaurants in the end. That was Lisa Seamus a year ago, when the annual restaurant issue of Chicago Social Magazine came out. And for a fifth year in a row, she'd been one of the few people to pronounce on the entire restaurant scene in a comprehensive roundup. The new restaurant issue of CS just came out. So it's time again to talk to her about what our chefy dining scene looks like in 2014. So, the CS issue yeah. of 2014. What's the big theme? I mean, here you are. Once again, you're, you're one of the few people that gets to pronounce on the whole scene. <laughs> uh, although you had co-writers this year, I see. I did. I did. I mean, I came up with all the ideas, but I definitely looked to those extra writers to kind of plug in the specifics. But, um, yeah, it was, it was not, I think it needs more than my voice, even though I get kind of greedy just because I get my head all wrapped around it and then I have to give it up like a baby. But, um, yeah, I, was, I, I had some great writers to help me this time, so I feel grateful for that. Okay, yeah. But as far as trends, it's hard, it, you know, this year, there's some of the big ones, like Italian. I think everyone's seen that. Um, one good thing I like with the Italian, I'm also seeing smaller pasta sizes, like what you'd see in Italy, which I think is great I'm, I'm not a big fan of these big as your head pasta portions so, so i think it's italian and also kind of yeah right escaping the legacy of rosebud <laughs> i know i i don't get those i mean i i don't yeah i'm not a big take-home person kind of but i don't like leftovers as much as i probably should but and the pasta probably it's so delicate and it's house-made so i don't think it's something you'd want to mess with and heat up the next day i think you're not going to have the same experience but yeah, I think it's I think it's a good sign. I just and I hope diners don't go up in arms about it. So, which of the Italian places uh, seem worth it, and not just a cash grab that that looks at how inexpensive pasta is, and you can sell right? it for eighteen ninety five. I know. Well, I wasn't mentioned in the piece. I don't think. Oh, yeah, it is. It has a little mention. Co- Cocello, Cocello, Cocello. I guess it would be uh, in River North. Had some lovely pastas at the bar and this polenta, like a truffle scented polenta that was delicious. Nico, great, great pastas there. Um, really terrific. Um, where else did I go? I'm looking forward to Formentos, even though it hasn't opened yet, but I think that's going to be interesting. Oh, and Cicchetti, too, Michael Sharon. I, I think he's doing a little more inventive things there or kind of twisting the concept, but I, I like the end results. Yeah, the, the oddly Scandinavian Italian food. At Chiquetti, but uh, sardines. Yeah. <laughs> That's another trend. I'm, we're seeing sardines everywhere, which I'm quite happy. Probably the sardines aren't happy, but I'm very happy to be seeing sardines everywhere. Well, you it's know, that, that's an interesting point. I mean, we are about to get hit with this fish wave. I mean, we've got the first part of it, mm-hmm. Nico and Joe Fish mm-hmm. and things like that. But Kinmont. Yeah, and Kinmont, and the, you know, the Mercadito people are opening a fish restaurant, so it must be. That's a trend. right. That's right. I mean, we've come to the point where octopus now is everywhere. Who would have thought a few years ago that people would be eating octopus like as normal as shrimp, yeah, even more so? It's the new salmon. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, is that is that it? Okay, I missed that one. <laughs> <laughs> but that's. I think it's fun. I think it's a good thing. So Diversify. What do, you, what do you think? Uh, all this. All this fish these fish places are going and do we you know do we really know enough what to do with fish here in chicago well i think what i've been finding out is you know we get such great fish in because we're such a hub 
for a lot of the airlines and a lot of the, so we get, it's like with the beer situation, why we were, became such a big craft beer place, because all of it comes through Chicago, going East Coast. So I heard we, we can, and I, I'm, hopefully I got the facts right on that, but that we, we can get this stuff in so easily and quickly, it's just one stop. So we do have access to some really great seafood from all over the world. So I think it's, um, I think we're going to see more. I think in the, the, the big rise in oyster places with the fact that um, you know, the oyster farms were able to have oysters year-round now, which is really fun if you, if you like oysters, which I do. And um, whole fish, that's another thing. I think we used to only see that you know, in ethnic restaurants or maybe in, in, in Italian restaurants, but now everyone's serving a whole fish, which you know, it tastes better on the bone. You get more flavor, and I think chefs are enjoying it more, but those are things, I think it's, those are huge changes. I don't think, you know, years ago you couldn't, you know, if you had bones in the fish, people would freak out, let alone eyes and fins and stuff. So I think, I think we've come a long way. I think it's, I think it's all good. Hopefully they're done in a way that's good for the sea as well, because that's still such a complicated issue. You know, seafood sustainability, it's not just, you know, a particular fish, it's how it's fished, whether it's trawled, whether it's, you know, these big nets that are scooping everything up and some fish are better from farms, but then ones like salmon farms are bad because you know, they pollute the waters that are around. So it's it's a complicated element, twist to it. So you know it's nice that we have chefs can impart some of that sensibility to to diners, so we have a better idea of what we should and shouldn't be eating. Now the Italian uh, side of it, I mean, on the one hand. Mm-hmm. You're right. We're getting more artisanal Italian or just more artfully done Italian. It's it's mm-hmm. it's finally getting away from being a commodity food as it often was. Right. Um, yes. I mean, not that there weren't always better places, but there was an awful lot of pasta being shoveled by the pound, too. Um, mm-hmm. At the same time, I mean, the fact that kind of our more creative restaurant groups are all doing, you know, Italian places and steak places seems like mm-hmm. kind of a backwards move at the same time. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think there's like two parallel movements. I mean, I think there, there's the ones that are getting more regional Italian and more specific, and then ones that are like Fermento's, which is going to be more of a throwback to, you know, their take on, on the red sauce from what I understand. So I think you have both those movements going on. And steakhouses, to me, is puzzling just because I'm not a big steakhouse person, but it's amazing, you know, I'm an oddity because so many people seem to love them and they seem to always be busy. So that, that's a good question. We need to, we need to find out more information on on that. I'd be curious to know whether or not steakhouses are as strong, you know, say in LA or New York, or if it's more of just a a Chicago specific thing where we can open one, you know, every other week and still have customers. Now, another thing you mentioned in the article was that one of the trends was vegetables. I mean, yeah, the entire food group reduced to a trend. <laughs> but you read a lot suddenly about vegetables. I mean, I feel like I've seen enough mention of the barbecued carrots at the Publican that there must be some, you know, like feedback behind it that says nobody knows you have vegetables. Well, you definitely see them more. And I think the first place I remember seeing them um featured so much was that girl and the goat that had a whole side section and I think I did a piece on it a while ago for for men's book on this trend and Stephanie had mentioned that you know once they decided to devote a section on the menu to vegetables they they knew they needed to you know up it as far as presentation and what they you know what would come out you know on the table so they really got creative whether it's using 
wood-burning oven or, you know, adding meat. I mean, it's definitely they're not, we're not talking vegetarian dishes. By no means, a lot of these ones will have pancetta or bacon in there or they use, you know, chicken stock or something like that. But I think a lot of chefs are like to eat more this way, so it's something that they're putting on the menus as well. I know it's um, over at uh, Nelcote, they have some great dishes over there. And Jared, for him, it was a, a personal thing that he needed to change his diet. So it was something that he just started incorporating on the menu more as well and finding out that people were responding really well to it. But I think you, you can't just do it the same old way. I think, like I said, the, the wood-burning ovens have really done some great things for vegetables. And the chefs I spoke with, I mean, it's not easier to cook these vegetables. It's actually much harder. I mean, a steak, uh, there isn't as much wiggle room on some of the uh, proteins, but in vegetables, there's so many subtleties that come into play that it's actually can be more difficult to create these great vegetable dishes. So it's not like they're doing it to make their lives any easier, but I think they're just trying to explore and challenge themselves. And I think there's been some really great vegetable dishes out there. And we've just all done pork and enough of that. <laughs> but vegetables with bacon, that is brilliant, right? Yeah, because that never existed before. Nobody ever put a like a ham hock in their greens or anything. Right, right. right. But um, yeah, but yeah, not vegetarian, that's for sure. But yeah, I hear you. It's pretty funny, but I'm eating them up. I don't know about you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's talk about your top ten. I mean, is there any particular order to it? No. I mean, I guess I probably should put it in, in order, at least, at least alphabetical, so you know it's not in order. But no, not really. Um, but one of the ones that stood out for me, I think, um, is 42 grams. I think that it's such a personalized restaurant, um, at the same time really creative and combining a lot of different techniques, techniques and trends that we've seen, whether or not it's, I know chefs hate that word, molecular gastronomy, but there's a little bit of, of that going on here. And then there's also just plain old cooking meat on uh, you know, yakitori grill that, that made it so delicious. So I think it's a place that kind of is tapping into a lot of different things. And the service was just so lovely. Um, and that one-on-one experience of having the chef right in front of you is... So I think it, it hit a lot of notes for me, and I'm not usually a big fan of... of high-end necessarily, high-end fancy dining, but they do it in a way that is approachable and that you could go in jeans if you wanted to and, and get to experience great food without having to be all dressed up. Yeah, it's very disarming. It's it's just easy to like. And people were laughing. I mean, some of the fine dining places, you don't hear laughter. Not that it's not encouraged or something, but it's just definitely a place. You have a lot of fun there, and I think that's what part of big part of why I enjoyed it as well. But it's this great food and great technique and all that, but it was really fun. Yeah, yeah. So another one that you really liked? <sighs> Just one? Uh, I really like Dusex. Um, a lot going on, a lot of fun flavors. Um, again, the atmosphere is low-key and the service low-key but um, informative, so it's not so laid back that the servers don't know what that is that they're serving. But it's just really good flavors there. Um, Nico, I had, I had great meals there. Uh, breakfast was really, really good. That's a great time to go if you, you know, want to save some money and don't have to deal with the crowds. So um, but definitely that one. A10, I thought it was fun. I really hadn't spent much time in, in that area in Hyde Park, so it was fun to kind of get on the bus and head on over to a faraway place and have a great meal there. And I, I love the design of that restaurant. I think it's a really pretty, pretty space. 
um, Tanta, Peruvian food. There really wasn't much else in the city doing Peruvian. There used to be a place called Rinconcito on the Armitage, but I think that's been gone for a while. So, that, so it's nice to see Peruvian food represented. Now that's the one I'm going to argue with because I went there and I had a pretty bad experience. Yeah, I remember reading that. I I went back. I was there originally when they towards the beginning and I had two great experiences. And I went with a friend of a friend who's from Peru, um, and he had already been like three or four times with his friends, and they all loved it. So I kind of let him be my guide, and they he really liked it, and I I really liked it, but. Had you gone once and had a good experience? No, and I didn't go early, and, you know, everybody loved it early on. But I went later, and I just felt like I got hustled. You know, like I was getting the TGI Fridays upsell at every point. And also, everything just seemed like food for drunk Americans. You know, here, have a glob of potato and some meat and and hot sauce. Oh, okay. Except the ceviche. I mean, that was really nice. That was simple, and it was was good. But that's exactly what I didn't think about the rest of it. Uh, Rattler was yes. great. I don't know if you've tried those pancakes. Like a, I think a sourdough pancake was really good. I think yeah, and one of the salads he has like a, a is it a not an oyster, a clam vinaigrette. Really interesting flavors going on there as well. And the atmosphere. I just sat at the bar, which is usually always where I sit. Seems and uh, had that. And yeah, I had a great experience there. Fun service. Yeah, I like the Rattler a lot. You know, we were talking about Italian food earlier. And at one point, Nathan Sears at the Rattler said to me, it's really an Italian restaurant cooking German food. And I could see that. <laughs> oh, that wasn't as a joke. Okay. Well, it kind of was, but it, but it's also kind of true. I mean, he's he's taking the Italian thing of cooking fresh, simple food, and he's applying that to German food. You know, it's just it's such a turnaround from the usual German or Eastern European food here that's so heavy. I haven't had much of it, but what I had doesn't... It's not something I... Would, would go out would search for um, maybe it's the heaviness and the fact that I'm short and can't eat a lot but um, it, yeah German food is not food that I really know well but it's not something like I said I would search out but this this I would I thought that you have these great flavors there but it's lightened up in, in, from what I've experienced alright anything else that struck you about the food this year no I think probably the general thing is there wasn't really a high end restaurant really I mean, besides 42 Grams, but you think of fine dining, there wasn't one that opened this year. I don't know. Do you know of any even opening up soon that we would think of as fine dining? Does that change forever, you think? Not really. I mean, it's kind of like Grace is, is like the odd one out. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that anyone else feels like they want to open that kind of place anymore. Which is interesting. Yeah, I don't even see any on my like list of upcoming restaurants. So it's that's going to be an interesting thing to keep an eye on, I think, is to where... I think that's redefining of fine dining and, and what that means going down the road. If it's going to be more places like 42 grams or whether or not we're going to switch around and see tablecloths and all that come back. But I have a feeling we're not. I don't know if we're going to. I, I, I think it's it's changed for good. There, I said it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For the next few weeks, there are certain restaurants in Chicago, especially around Devon Avenue, that you can walk into. 
and though they will welcome you, you won't be allowed to eat until darkness falls. Then a buffet will be opened, and rushed by people who act like they haven't eaten all day. Well, they haven't eaten all day. They're Muslims who have been fasting every day of Ramadan, the holy month. And restaurants run by their fellow Muslims lay out a spread for them, so that they can eat as soon as the fasting period is up. You're welcome to enjoy this feast called Iftar, too, when the time comes each night. Ivan Maffei is a convert to Islam who runs a popular cooking blog for Muslims, MyHalalKitchen.com, from her home in the northwest suburbs. Chicago Foodways Roundtable recently hosted an event at my favorite Pakistani restaurant, Khan Barbecue at Devon and Western, in which Maffei explained these customs. I spoke with her before her talk. Ramadan is the ninth month of the Islamic calendar, and um, it's a time in which Muslims believe that the Holy Quran, or the book, uh, our, our holy book, was uh, revealed to Prophet Muhammad through the angel Gabriel. And so this is a time of uh, memorizing the Quran, reading the Quran, reflecting on the Quran. Um, but the thing that most people outwardly see is that we're fasting. So we abstain from food and water or any type of drink during the entire month. At sunset time, we break our fast and we have um, a, maybe a date or a glass of water or anything a little bit sweet to kind of you know help our bodies come down from the long fasting day. And, um, and then we proceed to prayer. We have five daily prayers and this is one of our uh, uh, five daily prayers. This is the sunset prayer. It lasts about five minutes. And um, then we come back to the table for a meal. And, you know, just like a regular dinner or, or lunch or something like that. You know, every family is different. Every cuisine will be different in the household. But um, then t people typically take a couple of hours and either go to the mosque where the Quran is being recited, or maybe they'll do that at home. Uh, and then get a little bit of sleep and then um, rise very early before the sun rises and have another meal and that's called suhoor. It's kind of like a breakfast so we try to eat that make sure it's nice and nutritious and hydrating because once the sun begins to rise that uh, signals what we call fajr time. That's also a time that we, we have another prayer but that's also the cutoff point for uh, no more eating. We begin the fasting day again. So we do this for 30 days or the entire month of Ramadan. And Islam, we follow a lunar calendar, so it could be 28 days, 29 days, 30 days, depending on the cycle of the moon. So it's really important to sight the moon at the beginning of Ramadan and at the end of Ramadan so to signal like the beginning of the fast and the end of the fast. So we're really in tune with the whole lunar cycle. Okay, and it began on June 27th or 28th? This, well, so for this, for us, we began fasting on the 29th, which was Sunday. Uh, some people started the 28th. It just depends on where they were in the world and where the, if the moon was sighted in that part of the world. Typically, people will do that, or they might follow a larger city, or they might follow, um, you know, another country. You know, it just depends what they decide to do, but... People were between one and three days apart that they were fasting at the same time. Are there any particular foods that are associated with it or 
I mean, Islam spans so many cultures. Sure, sure. That I can't imagine there's that many commonalities. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, I'm a convert, so I came from an Italian and Puerto Rican family, and um, so I don't have a traditional food for Ramadan, but. I know many people from the Indo-Pakistani community and the Arab community, they do have very traditional foods that they really want to enjoy in Ramadan. So, but, but the thing that's kind of common for all of us is that we, we all like to break our fast with dates because the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he used to break his fast with, with a date or three dates. I mean, so it's sort of just following the tradition, but you don't have to. So any Muslim from you know, Indonesia to Mexico is going to you know try to probably break their fast with a date, but there are different um, cultural norms. Like for the Indo-Pakistani community, they really like to you know break their fast with a date, have a glass of water, or or a drink called ruafsa, which is a which is a milky frothy drink that looks a little bit pink, and it's all over the stores here in Devon. You can buy the syrup to make it. Um, that's really common. And they also like to have something really crunchy at, at the appetizer time, you know, like maybe before prayer and before the big meal. So maybe a samosa or, you know, something kind of crunchy, meaty, you know, but, but a little bite-sized thing, you know. So it really just depends the culture. I've sort of adopted some of those things just because they're really delicious. Um, but in, in but as long as everything is halal, which is, you know, food that is permissible in Islam, things that are not haram or forbidden, let's say, um, so we don't drink alcohol or have any food that's cooked in alcohol, wine, or anything like that, and we don't eat pork and we don't eat animals of prey. So you know, there's there's a variety of things we don't eat, but there's a huge abundance of things that are halal. So really, I mean, it's it's just dependent on what you like to do, like to eat within the whole halal spectrum. What happens in uh, Muslim restaurants during mm-hmm. this time? Well, you know, um, in the restaurants that are helping Muslims observe the fast and breaking the fast, I think they're, they're really cognizant of the fact that people are going to break the fast with dates and some water, so that's probably going to be at the table just a few minutes before it's time to break the fast. And then um, they understand that, you know, people might want a little crunchy appetizer, like I talked about, and depending on the type of cuisine of the restaurant. And then they probably would provide a place for people to pray because we don't go from breaking the fast um, and having an appetizer and then going to the full meal and then praying much later because there's a very short window of time to pray the sunset prayer, the maghrib prayer. So we would uh, remove ourselves from the table, go and pray. It takes five, seven minutes and come back and have, uh, you know, be served the, the bigger meal. and. And then people typically don't linger too long after the main meal because uh, a lot of people like to go to the mosque for the night prayers. And so it's not it's not a time where people are just kind of mingling and you know socializing for way too long into the night. You know, that usually if that happens it might happen after the the, the night prayers at the mosque. But so it's like sort of okay to eat and run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but the restaurants would probably be full at the same time, you know, because it's there's such a it's a critical t- uh, thing to break your fast on time, not delay it. So if it's if it's time to break your fast at eight thirty five, you don't wait until eight forty five and break your fast. It's not considered noble or okay to do that. You really should break it on time. Which is from a practical standpoint why it's a buffet. Yeah. Everyone can get food quickly. It's yes. not you're not sitting there yeah. waiting to order yeah, and yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. 
what's the protocol for for a non-Muslim? I mean, should you you probably shouldn't be dipping into their their food when they've been fasting all day. Oh, um, well, I think people you know have pretty good manners, and I, I think that you know they would understand that you know this person is probably trying his or her best to you know do the right thing. But I say just go with the flow. Look to the person next to you who you know is a Muslim and try to follow or ask for some guidance, you know. But really, there's really nothing to, to do except enjoy enjoy yourself, enjoy the food. And um, it's probably not a good idea to eat before uh, breaking the fast if you're at the same table with other Muslims. I think that would be appropriate to wait. <laughs> um, but other than that, once it's time to break your fast, you know, you can have anything you want, really. I mean, we just don't rush into the main food because... Our stomachs also wouldn't be able to handle right. that, you know. So we kind of ease into it with, you know, the water, the dates. And at home, I like to have soup because it sort of gets my stomach acclimated to food. But everybody's different. So once it's time to break the fast, like, go ahead and, you know, enjoy the food. Okay. So um, at Khan Barbecue here, what are we going to see on the buffet? Well, I have a good guess that you're probably going to see samosas, which are, you know, deep-fried goodness uh, with maybe ground beef and potatoes and peas or something like that for an appetizer. Um, You'll probably see maybe a tandoori, which is a chicken in in a tandoori grill, so a grilled uh, chicken on a stick with lots of rice. You'll probably find lots of rice, saffron rice or... All basmati rice, because that's sort of the Indo-Pakistani type of rice that we'll enjoy here. Um, You might see dishes with uh, spinach, lots of potatoes, um, sort of curries, you know, things that are sort of saucy and have um, nice, they're nicely spiced. I don't know about the heat level and like how hot they'll make things here because I haven't been to this restaurant, but if you prefer something less hot, you might want to ask for, you know, ask the server what on the menu is not so hot um, but we'll probably also see some lamb maybe some goat dishes um, and they all most of the time they'll have bone they're not going to be boneless uh, dishes so that's something people are not always used to so whether it's in a soup or a, a, a rice dish like biryani is a, a favorite you know rice dish um, it's, it's probably going to have bones in it um, so that's something to just uh, take heat up but the food will be delicious and aromatic and wonderful okay um, are there, what other restaurants would you suggest uh, that, that you know of that you've been to and have an iftar spread that, that would be interesting for people to check out? Well, I am such a home cook that yes, I, don't, I don't really go out to restaurants too often, particularly for iftar. And usually when we go out for iftar, we're invited to people's homes. And that's a you know really special thing you know someone's labored all day long to, to feed a fasting a fasting group of people so um, but but in the Devon area I would suggest Usmania Chinese because it's um, unique for the halal, the Muslim community to have a halal cuisine that's Chinese and I've been there before and the food is really really good um, and I think I've seen signs that they were they were doing iftar. So, you know, it'll probably be this, a similar setup to here, but a totally different cuisine. In fact, I would love to try it because it's something different. And usually when we go to Chinese restaurants, we might have to have fish or, you know, something because we're not sure about the meat. So, um, but there, everything is halal. So that's really nice for us. Okay. Um, but you could probably find... Uh, a layout of like some of the Middle Eastern restaurants in town. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of good restaurants. I don't think that they're specifically going to have um, iftar 
you know, setups, but there are, you know, Pita Inn is like a fast food place that's all in the suburbs. I, their food is really, really good. Um, I like that one. But other than that, I mean, down here in Devon, I've had friends tell me that uh, Didi Kebab is pretty good. For the sweets, we usually go to Tahura, which is a couple doors down, and they have really good um, uh, Pakistani sweets, and they also have um, drinks like mango smoothies and faluda, which is which has like tapioca um, bubbles in them. And so you know, really d- different things that you won't find outside of an area that's you know heavily trafficked by by the Indo-Pakistani community. Okay, now I want to ask the most American question, which is. <laughs> Do you lose weight during this oh, uh, month, or, or do you gain weight because you eat so much when you're even starved all day? You know, it's really funny because uh, I feel like, you know, I, I don't feel like I really lose weight. I feel like I maintain my weight, but I think it's because I'm really more careful about what I eat when I'm not fasting because I'm so afraid of getting that sugar spike and then like being, feeling really sick before it's time to break the fast. So I don't, I don't have a lot of sweets or even a lot of coffee, which I love coffee. But I think that's why I maintain my weight. Um, but a lot of people say that they gain weight more than they lose weight. I think it just depends on the person and what they eat when they're not fasting. You know, um, I don't think my husband would say that he gains weight. Uh, you know, he's sort of got a higher metabolism than I do. So you know, it really just depends on the person. But and also the the. The whole purpose of Ramadan is not about, you know, feasting once you're done fasting. It's to, you know, find inner an inner reflection about, you know, your life, your 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 God, your your whole purpose. And so the food the food isn't really the focus of things. I think it's just something that people tend to enjoy because everyone's on the same schedule and they can really sit down to the table they can really make a plan and say you know we're going to meet at iftar time and everybody knows when that is because it's the same time for everyone no matter you know wherever you are so the focus tends to be um you know so much less on food and actually your stomach just kind of it, it shrinks after a few days um, so I don't know how I could really gain weight. Yeah. That's a good thing. That's a very good thing. Good thing. So it's it's more communal than than like yeah. the American dinner where this person's gluten free and that one's paleo and that well, one's Well, there are you know, I see it on my food blog all the time where people are asking for gluten free halal and, and paleo halal and you know, so there are subsets of the halal, you know, food too. I think there there are vegetarians in the halal, you know, community. So, um, yeah, we get those. But I think if you were to show up at a large gathering and say, you know, can I have a vegan kebab? I, I don't know how many people would be able to cater to that right now. But uh, maybe in 10 years. <laughs> Yvonne Maffei's blog is myhalalkitchen.com. I'll have links for the restaurants she mentioned at skyfullofbacon.com. Thanks to Tremaine Atkinson at CH Distillery, Carrie Lung and Francis Kim, Karen Harold and Darcy Horath, Lisa Seamus of CS, and to Yvonne Maffei, Kathy Lambrecht of Chicago Foodways Roundtable, and everyone at Khan Barbecue, which really is one of my favorite restaurants in the whole city. Music is by Kevin McLeod. I'll be back in a few weeks with another episode. This is episode 12. <laughs>